Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is the eaten one, Jeff Goad. And I'm your co-host, Hoy. Hello, Arha. <laughs> give me back my soul. <laughs> or give me back my name. There you go. I name you Goad. <laughs> this week, we're very honored to have Nura, game designer of Unconquered, publisher and proprietor of Monkey's Paw Games. Hello, Nura. Hi, how's it going? Very good. Under the circumstances, I guess we can all say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all hanging in there. All right. So, Nura, uh, we always like to find uh, people's secret origin stories to bank for our secret villain files. But how did you get into gaming? It's a weird story in that I kind of, like, in my elementary school, I played a lot of Magic the Gathering. And then another one of my friends who also played Magic had a bunch of these gigantic books one day. And uh, I was like, Erica, what, what's, what's going on there? And she's like, oh, this is Dungeons & Dragons. And uh, that was, I think, I was th- 12 or 13. And um, we started playing, or I started playing in her campaign. And um, she had already been... Like so the only thing I knew Dungeons and Dragons for was um, the Baldur's Gate video games. I was super into those, mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't get into the tabletop game at first because the Baldur's Gate games are, are based on second edition with like Thaco and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so like none of the none of the comparisons really made sense to me mechanically. I'm like, but this isn't like the games. Like this is weird. I don't. I'm not into this. Um, so then I didn't play. I I only played like. Uh, like magic and warhammer and like tabletop games until college and then um in games club i got introduced to a bunch of other non D games um like vampire and deadlands and um dogs in the vineyard for a bit and then um after that i got dragged into i don't remember if it was first dark heresy and then legend of the five rings or the other way around and um i ended up running a dark heresy game for like eight or nine years with the same group uh and that group is still playing just with a different gm because i couldn't handle it anymore i was going out of my mind a little bit um but then i i started like i i kind of realized that the game that we were playing in both Dark Heresy and Five Rings was completely different than what was in the rule book. Like we had just written a, a whole different game because every time we came across a rule we didn't like collectively, we were like, well, this doesn't work for us. Right. So, so eventually so, it was so, Ship of Theseus. <laughs> yeah. So and then at that point we were like, we're not playing either of these games anymore. Um and I had all these notes and I had like I still do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes on mechanics and lore and world building and everything. And um, but I, and, and like, you know, this is, this is almost like 15 years of, of playing games before I even thought of, Hey, I could like do this, like not as, not as hacks for other games. Like I could make my own thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I, I, so I didn't, I didn't actually publish anything until 
2019, but prior to that, I've been writing games and designing games kind of unknowingly for a long, long time. So I kind of accidentally became a game designer. In the way that I think a lot of game masters are are basically game designers as well, a lot of us are changing the rules as we go and kind of working with what we got. And that's kind of how you start becoming a game designer. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, like, really, like my game and your game and Hoy's game are all going to be probably different mm-hmm. just based on the table and who we're playing with, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. really, every like all all a game is 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 strictly the table i don't think it's so much the book right i Uh, think auteur theory definitely runs into problems with something like (laughs) role-playing games yeah right it it, like it it it, uh it's totally different everybody's game is completely different and so we're all kind of game designers whether we realize it or not because there's there's as much game design going on at the table or more so than there is like actually sitting down to write these Mm. these texts that we that we write Right, right. And that must have been a pretty big leap, not only to just publishing your own work, but then becoming, you know, a distributor publisher of, uh, you know, other works there. Yeah. Uh, I, the first thing I ever published was, a um, like I started publishing hacks of games and, and, um, cause I, I really like dogs in the vineyard. Um, it's one of my favorite systems. Uh, it's, it's just like beautifully designed, but the, the setting is, has a lot of, problematic issues to it to, to say the least um and so i was like i really like the bones of this but i would like to do something with it that isn't tied to this kind of like like mormon ultra religious gunslingers and and kind of not great indigenous stereotypes so i tried to adapt it to something else and then um i was like oh that was fun and and now i like i have my own ideas that i'm branching off from the way that this system was written to doing something else. And then um, I think it was May or June on itch. There's, you know, game jams and, and so people, mm-hmm. there's like a theme and um, it was the, it was the Lieber Baskerville jam, which was this, it was like basically stream of consciousness game writing where you just start writing a game and you don't stop. You don't hit backspace. If you have to cross anything out, you use like a strike through and you just tried to create this, like, like a, like a, poem game like a lyric game whatever and um and through that game jam i i got tapped into this sort of indie scene of game designers who were doing things that i'd never read before in the like sort of games that you could buy at the store Mm -hmm. um and it totally sort of blew my mind as far as what what sort of stories could be told and, and the language that we could use to tell those stories and um so again, it's it's a very like because I don't even remember how I got uh, initially found the the Baskerville Jam or Itchio at all. So mm-hmm. it's another sort of accident. It's basically a running theme of like me stumbling into something and being like, <gasps> there was something in the air at that point. I remember there was a lot of game jams, you know, happening at the time. Yeah, to sort of um, tie it to sort of your fictional interests. So I you have a very diverse gaming background, but I noticed that a lot of your current work is still sort of rooted in fantasy, although not necessarily sort of high, you know, it's sort of trad fantasy. Um, and uh, some of your stuff is getting back to Swords and Sorcery. Your Unconquered project is, you know, sort of uh, Bronze Age. Were you already always uh, very deeply into fantasy as a reader, and, you know, younger? Oh, yeah. I, I, the first book I ever read 
by myself was The Hobbit. Um, I probably read Lord of the Rings cover to cover so many times that uh, my I had I've gone through two copies like they've just fallen apart on me. Um, and uh, I yeah I basically grew up on like going to secondhand bookstores and looking for the like trashiest fantasy novel with like you you know you know with they all have the same cover it's like a dude with a shield and a dragon's breathing fire and he's holding the shield up and he's got like super long hair and a big sword Mm -hmm. and then there's like an elf with a bow hiding in a corner and like a hobbit (laughs) or there's like a lady sorcerer whose hand is yes yeah yeah right it didn't matter who it was or who it was by. I had to buy it and read it. So my collection of um, of secondhand fantasy books that like, it, and it it would be like part two of a five series. Right, that's how you find them in those trilogy. Days, right? <laughs> and I, and I would I would never read part one or three to five. I would only read the second book and be like, oh, that was cool. And then I'd move on to the next one and and just like so I I consumed fantasy like like high fantasy sort of trad fantasy voraciously and it wasn't really until maybe five or six years ago that i started to get into um more sword and sorcery stuff so like fritz lieber and um and howard and uh all those authors and and um legin as well who Mm. is very almost genre less Mm-hmm. I would, I would almost say, because it's like, do you, would you, would you say that she's like, it's she's not, she's not a trad fantasy writer, but she's not not, but she's not a sword and sorcery writer, but she's not, not either, right. kind of thing, right? It's, it's like I don't, a, I she's not a yeah, YA writer, but she's not. You not. can't <laughs> exactly, you can't pin it down, and and so that that kind of blew my mind away, and also, um, it also blew my mind because I was like, oh wow, there are non-white people that are writing fantasy and sci-fi that was something that i i i just hadn't encountered mm-hmm. um even though i had looked for it i was just like there wasn't there wasn't a ton out there it seemed um and so you know finding Legin and finding like charles saunders and, and reading um yeah um that's another another one that's i'm like oh i gotta reread those books now mm-hmm. and yeah. then um, more recently, stuff like uh, Marlon James is fantastic, and then mm-hmm. the two authors that I'll talk about later, um, C.L. Clark and Tasha Suri. There's just like a lot of really good sort of non-trad fantasy, or that's like some of it's sword and sandal, some of it's sword and sorcery, some of it's kind of sci-fi. Um, but uh, I chew it all up. Especially interesting to see uh, authors who are non-trad who are working in idioms. Like, you know, it's it's one thing, for example, to, uh, if let's say I'm Asian, working something like Asian fantasy or something like that, but people coming back and writing uh, Sword and Sorcery, which is traditionally, in certain people's minds, uh, you know, a white male-dominated genre. And then Charles Saunders comes in and says, no, here's my take on it. Exactly. Uh, I would love to see, uh, and I know there's some sort of short stories, but not well published yet, but, you know, LGBT takes, other people of color uh other other identities of various sorts um in the sort of idiom of sword and sorcery for example oh well i have two books for you for the end of all right the so let's, let's get your recommendations right on let's go let's let's hear it <laughs> yeah so um the two that i've become slightly obsessed with right now and the two authors as well because they're both lovely and their social media presences are hilarious are um cl clark and tasha suri and Clark wrote uh, The Unbroken, 
which is it's it's not so much sword and sandals as it is almost like 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 victorian napoleonic might be closer because it's like a gunpowder era um Mm -hmm. but it's a colonial fantasy that talk touches on um occupation and colorism and um it's also you know gay as hell it's very very one it's there's a lot of gay pining between the protagonists um and, and it's it tells a story of of two characters in two different worlds one who's a, a conscript soldier for an occupying force that's returning home to her conquered homeland as sort of a conscripted like police force and her love interest is literally the princess of this occupying nation who has been charged with pacifying this um uh this colony mm-hmm. um in order to secure her position at court as like the heir to the throne sort of thing and um it's absolutely heart-wrenching as it should be because it, it touches on um some pretty heavy themes um but it's it's beautifully written it's uh it's a fantastic book i i cannot recommend it highly enough right. well right away i can see the uh, connections to the book that we'll be discussing today so yes exactly <laughs> there you go um, and your recommendation from tasha story the other one is the jasmine throne jasmine which throne. is uh, a similar story um it's a very it's set in like a like rather than being a, a eurocentric fantasy this one is set in, in a like a fictitious india and so it touches on a lot of um indian mythology and religion and um it has uh, a really really fascinating lens on um culture and specifically magic and um and it's you know again the there's an, another theme between or a shared theme between this and the unbroken in that um it's you know the like commoner princess uh sort of pining relationship two worlds separated by culture and by class and and um and this is another one where class comes in really really heavily and also colorism and just like the role of women and the the difference between like soft and hard power which again are things that are uh, very very related to the book that we're going to be talking about well there you go both of those i i absolutely cannot say enough nice things about like they're fantastic so with that with that wind up this week's book which most of you who are listening will already know is the tombs of atalon by ursula k Le Guin. um before we dive into the book proper we usually try to find a high gaxian word of the week it was difficult to find one because again uh, Le Guin's prose is so lucid um but uh i think we'll give this one to robert's word right which is jugglery uh which is the art of practice of a juggler and in this case, it comes up twice. It's when the priestesses are dismissing the magic of the sorcerers of Earthsea um, as mere tricks and, and diab- you know, diabolical behavior. And in very much, it's interesting because very much right at the end of that passage, they talk about how she asks, uh, Ara asks, are the, are the wizards black with white eyes as we expected? You know, it, it's, it's the magic is racialized because the Kargat Isles are the white the only white region in Earthsea, and they don't have yeah. magic as it's understood in the rest of Earthsea um, as an other. So, jugglery. Cool. Yeah. And we're also going to take a moment to look at the edition of the book that we're working with. Um, I've got the um, ebook of the Bantam paperback, and it's got that cool kind of uh, blue cover of, um, of what I'm assuming is Ged walking through the labyrinths below. 
and um, the artist who did that piece is John Jude Palancar. Um, but also while reading it, I also was listening to the Audible ebook, uh, the uh, the Audible audiobook that was read by Rob Inglis, and that was also a very lovely reading of it. Um, Nora, uh, Nora, which edition of the book are you working with? I'm pretty sure I had that exact same ebook uh, copy. Uh, I have a physical copy somewhere, but I haven't been able to to dig it up in my many many overflowing bookshelves. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I couldn't find it, so I I, I went out and, and uh, when you contacted me first to to come on and talk about it, so I'm like, oh, I got to find my copy, and then I couldn't, so I just bought the first ebook that came up on google <laughs> play basically but it, it is that one Hoy, what you got there you go um i got um an ebook also from my library but most of my reading was done in the charles vest illustrated books of Earthsea, um which is sort of the entire series with a lot of the art was done in conjunction direct consultation with uh ursula Guin. so you can see that for example in the end papers it's properly a person of color um, which is something that has taken them a while to do. So, except for the very first edition where he was bronze colored uh, or copper colored. Um, so, yeah, it's a beautiful edition. And uh, just uh, I was struck again about how actually how short this book was. I hadn't remembered that it was actually that short. Yeah, I had a similar, um, like I was, uh, as I was reading it to get ready, and then you hit the end and you're like, and it's not that it, the end comes abruptly, but it's like, I, but I, but I want it to keep going. Right. But it's like it ends on a perfect note. But you're like, yeah, but, but, but then, but that, but now what? Right. Which I guess becomes material for not even the next book, but when she revisited it later on in the '80s and yeah. and, and brought back the various characters at various stages in their life without saying more than that. So, Nero, what was your, um, you know, obviously you wanted to keep reading. So, what was the thing that really just grabbed you right off the bat? Um, so there's one line in this book that I always come back to specifically, and um, it's when they're still in the tomb and um, Tenar is having uh, this crisis of identity, basically, about uh, securing her freedom and securing uh, Ged's freedom and um, uh, and just the, the guilt that she feels about um, being unable to secure her own freedom and needing help and Ged says uh nobody wins their freedom alone and that i i come back to that line i feel like every time i read this book and it's because it's it's such a great line first of all but it's also um because this book to me is, is so much about that dichotomy and like the the contrast between soft power and hard power and um sort of communal um the communal versus versus isolation. And so um, Tenar finally like getting her name back and finding uh, somebody who she can engage with as an equal and not um, either as a superior or as a lesser, like on equal grounds. It's such a turning point for this whole book. And it's, it's, uh, it's my favorite part in it. So. Mm-hmm. What you're saying reminds me a lot of what I really loved about this book. And I just want to start by saying, I think this book is exceptional. It's one of the absolute best books that um, I've read as a part of this project. And one of the things I was telling the book club prior to this is um, – <laughs> Whenever I finish reading one of these books, I like to slot it in order from my most favorite to least favorite of all the books that we've read. 
And uh, this is episode, what, 117 or something like 116. that? 116. 116. So of the 116 books we read, I slotted into Wizard of Earthsea at 52. Uh, the Tombs of Etwan, number three. The Tombs of Etwan is one of the best books that I've read as a part of this series. And also just one of the best books, best books I've read, period. And for me, what really, really struck me and I don't know if this was something she was intentionally doing or not, but it doesn't matter. To me, this is a really great story about the trauma of forced identities. So here we have this young girl who was stolen from her home and was forced into this particular role that she didn't ask for, that she didn't want. And in this role, she ended up doing some pretty awful things to people. She was responsible for the deaths of people, for the suffering of people. And then she meets Sparrowhawk or Ged. And here's somebody who's never been forced into one particular role. He's always lived his life authentically. And he is somebody who has all this great power that comes with having lived his life authentically. And when they do finally get out of the tombs together, she's somebody who's really struggling with having lived the life that she led. And she's somebody who's really blaming herself for these things that she did in this former life of hers. And to me, that just really um, feels like I, I think about how victims of sex trafficking tend to blame themselves for putting themselves in situations where they allowed for this thing to happen to them. And then they think of the terrible things that they did while in this position. And I, I really feel like Ursula K. Le Guin is exploring those kinds of issues in a really beautiful, profound, and human way. And there's one particular line that really just like punched me in the gut. And it's when she's talking about how guilt-ridden she is by the death of Manon and the role that she played in that. And Ged looks at her and says, listen, Tanar, Heed me. You were the vessel of evil. The evil is poured out. It is done. It is buried in its own tomb. You were never made for cruelty and darkness. You were made to hold light as a lamp burning holds and gives its light. I found the lamp unlit and I won't leave it on some desert island like a thing found and cast away. Like, I have goosebumps just reading that back. Like that's just it's so beautiful and so moving to me. Um Nora, you brought up something interesting, and uh, when we touch on this, is that, um, you know, without making this, it's not like a one-to-one -one analog with colonialism the way some other fiction is, but the Kargad Isles are an imperialistic power within the world of Earthsea, and they conquer places. Um, Co-option in colonialism, right? Because never just the ex the external power coming in, just like, because they don't have enough people to do that, so they, they find ways to co-opt uh, the, you know, the indigenous tribes and set them against you know, indigenous peoples and set them against each other, right? So we have one of the forces of oppression here is the other priests. And, she, and, and Tanar herself, before she regains her identity, is a force of oppression in certain ways too, right? That's one of the things that I, again, I, I love about this so much is is um, is I think the, the way that that's explained is how isolated all of these characters are from each other and from this sense of community and that's how tenar is able to kind of emancipate herself as soon as she she is able to interact with somebody at the same level because everybody in the tomb um there is a hierarchy but but everybody's at a different stage of that hierarchy right so like tenar has no power or any power she has is is strictly um suggestive uh, so she's totally under the power of um, Kossel and Thar, who have like 
the the sort of hard power. Um, but they have to sort of listen to what she says because the soft power that she represents sort of ties the whole thing together, right? So they have to pretend to listen to her. Right. Yeah, it legitimizes it. Um, right up until it doesn't, and they're like, well, we don't actually need you. It just it just makes it look like we do, right? But then even like she's isolated from people that she could have a relationship with, like Manan or, or Penthe. Mm-hmm. It's, all of these characters are so isolated from each other that they could never work together to overthrow this colonial power that has has imprisoned all of them because that's what it is really the tombs it's a prison it's a prison for all of them and it's literally in the middle of the desert yeah right it's the middle of the desert and it it it's not uh it's not an accident that all of the all of the people imprisoned there are women except for manan who's Mm -hmm. You know, and he's a, even he's a eunuch. He's a eunuch. Yeah, he's yeah. a eunuch, right? So, so there's there's a lot that Le Guin is saying about I think sex and intimacy here, and how um, the isolation of women and um, uh, from from society and from themselves mm-hmm. uh, is is like a huge a huge theme in this. And I think it's 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 interesting. Um, just in the way that a lot of like coming of age sort of buildings Roman stories are about like men coming into coming of age and finding their role in society. And this is the opposite of that. In Tanar comes of age and realizes that she doesn't have to be a part of the society. Mm-hmm. She can be whatever she wants. She doesn't have to fit in this this literal prison in the middle of the desert that they've put her in. In a way that Castle and Thar never realized, because they're women, obviously, right? But they've yeah. co-opted and totally bought into the system. And you know, we also sometimes hear about things like, or at least in the American prison system, right? A lot of the prisons are in like the rural, most poorest areas, and the yeah. guards actually are just in the prison. They're in prison too all day. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're brutalizing prisoners, but they're also in, prison in jail. All. Right. Yep. And yep. so Castle and Thar are also in jail. <laughs> Well, yeah. then we also learn more about how there's all of these systemic ways that they're kept all isolated from each other as well. Like when Ged asks her if she knows how to read, and she says, she says no, that is one of the black arts. Yeah, right? Like they're kept ignorant. They're kept literally in the dark, mm-hmm. which yep. is, again, that's not an accident, right? Um, and then when you're talking about sex, Oliver Brackenberry was in our patron book club, and he was telling us that he was reading a collection of essays by Ursula K. Le Guin, and she was saying that this book is very much about sex. And um, one of the, um, I forget, I forget who was saying this part, but who was talking about how um, the one way to look at it is looking at the tombs of Atwan as like the womb and again is the seed yeah. that comes in here. Yeah. yeah. And then all of this stuff is like birthed out of this process, um, which is also, I think, very interesting. That wasn't my particular take of it while reading it. But, um, but I also think that this, that's an interesting lens through which to, to view this work. Right. If it is a womb, though, it's incredibly sterile, right? Because the labyrinth is not like your normal dungeon that's teeming with different monsters. It's dry. It's dead, right? It's not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One thing that I also thought was really effective about this story was how it was really unclear to us as the reader whether or not the nameless ones were real and whether or not they were even, she was even worshiping entities, um, that had any power? Like, was this just superstition passed down by generations or are these actual supernatural powers? And I love that, um, 
you know, we discovered that Ged has been suppressing that that there are real powers down there, and Ged has been suppressing them with his magic, and it has barely be, he's been barely able to keep them at bay. But um, Tanara was not aware of that. And so she's seeing all these things happen down there that shouldn't be happening down there. And she's now taking this as a message that her gods are dead and she's all alone. And I thought that I thought that that part of the story was handled really well. And just there's a lot of like really great suspense building with both that and also the stakes for Ged felt very real. Like here is this great, this great wizard who we spent an entire novel with prior. And the stakes. I mean, really, the stakes really aren't any high or probably aren't even anywhere near as high as some of the things he was facing in the first book. But this somehow felt way more perilous. And it actually felt like we might lose this guy. Right. Robert was definitely commenting on that, that he felt that real terror there and Adam, too. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I've I've read all these books. uh, And the first time I read the series, I read it, you know, start to finish. Um, But this one, like I. Like I read uh, Tomb to get ready for this, but I didn't read a Wizard of Earthsea beforehand. So, like I have a like I I mostly remember a Wizard of Earthsea, but like the the significance the significance of of Ged as a character was like nicely downplayed in this. I feel yeah. like if you came into it having read that immediately prior, you're like, you you get that sense of like, oh yeah, this is like a you know he's a badass, but he's like straining all his power to keep the the nameless ones at bay in this mm-hmm. like Herculean effort uh, in order to get them both to safety. But if you hadn't and you were just focusing on the immediate the story at hand, his actions are no less heroic and and they're no less meaningful but um it isn't as if the Gwyn was like spent a whole bunch of time explaining how significant a character sparrowhawk was yeah um she just kind of presented him presented him as he exists in this book and then was like okay go um and so i think that's a really it's a testament to her masterfulness of character development in that you you don't really need to have read the first one to mm-hmm. understand who Ged is, what his his motivations are, who he is as a character, um, and what he means to this story and to Tanar without like you you don't have to have, have known anything about the story or the world previously because it's it's very self-contained. Um, and you could walk away from this book having not read any of the other Earthsea books. Although you shouldn't because yeah. <laughs> uh, they're they're also spectacular but um but you can and and have a very satisfying complete experience and understanding of this story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think what's telling um in this get as he appears in this book is that his openness and his vulnerability right he is in some ways taking on the even though he's ultimately the source of greatest wisdom in the book, he's some ways taking sort of the, the feminized role. Uh, he's the one who's in distress in some ways. I mean, it's, it's balanced out, but he's the one who's in distress in some ways needs to be rescued and someone has power over him, even though ultimately you find out that it's not, not strictly true. Um, but at first appearance, right? He's the one who needs to be rescued from within the labyrinth. Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, he, I mean, he even more or less flat out states that like, no, this is how my magic works. I'm not, he's not like, you know, it's that, it's that sort of Tolkien identity of, of magic as opposed to 
the the more um I don't know, like Dragonlance type of like spell slinger sort of thing. It's it's illusion and misdirection and and uh, and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's um, it's very interesting in a like I said as a as a reversal of uh, a coming of age story. Um, it's also kind of a reversal of like how the protagonists are interact with each other and um, and yeah, I mean now that you mention it. Have if you go into it having read Withers of Sea, and then uh, all of a sudden it's Ged that's the one that like needs to be rescued, and it's his vulnerability that's uh, explored quite significantly, and his weakness in that he's you know starving and dying of dehydration and and weakened from his imprisonment in the tombs. That it's like, oh yeah, this is um, this is a totally different kind of story than than what you might be expecting coming into it from the first book. What I also think is interesting is the first book feels very high fantasy. And this book, in some ways, is very sword and sorcery. When we read Conan stories and we read Clark Ashton Smith stories, how many stories do we have where our protagonist enters this like place where there's that's full of like decadent brainwashed inhabitants who are worshiping these demons that are pretending to be gods and the protagonist comes in here to steal a great treasure from them and then ends up getting out as the place is being destroyed from that perspective that's literally what happens here and that is very sword and sorcery but the 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 actual experience of of being in this story is so different than the experience of being in a Conan story or reading a Zothique story. Right. I think it very, very, very much may be a response to the Lancer Conans and all that that were happening at literally the same time being published. And as Neuroy, as you said, it's, it's not sword and sorcery, but it's not not sword and sorcery. <laughs> yeah, like it, it uses uh, it uses the same tropes and the same the same story structure. And now that you you pointed out, especially with everything collapsing at the end, I'm just like, oh yeah, that's just Tower of the Elephant. Which right. is yep. <laughs> like, that's, but that's great though. I love that. Like, I yeah. love, and, and again, that's, it's a testament to her mastery of writing that you can take something that's, it's almost like a five room dungeon level of, of story structure in its, not rigidity, but, but, um, structure itself. And being able to flip that on its head where you don't realize what it is that you've read until you've read it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, that, that is very, Sword and sandal, sword and sorcery. Even though um, it's a it's a progression of identity rather than a progression of right. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, that's the inversion of sword and sorcery too, right? Because sword and sorcery characters are almost always fully formed, right? Their identity yeah. is completely locked into place, right? Conan is a Conan from the very beginning. Right? Yeah, Conan doesn't change. The world changes around. Right. Conan. And his actions Which, and yeah. 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 And this is the reverse of that. We have a person who's literally had their identity completely stripped away and is re- reclaiming it. Right. And it's not like that Ged names her. Ged just restores her name. It's like this was always your name. Right. It's not like I gave you this name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then now transitioning this conversation more to a gaming side, uh, Nura, I understand that the Tombs of Atwan has been very inspirational in your own game design. I, I would love to hear how um, this story has inspired your game design, and I would also love to hear if, through your rereading of it, if you have new ideas that have been sparked from rereading this. Yeah. So, um, from a literary perspective, uh, this was very foundational to me, just for writing, because I think 
to me, at least my approach to game design is less, um, it's less telling a story through the use of clever mechanics or mechanisms and more presenting elements of a world for players to create a story in. And so I think a part of the most important part of game design for me is writing. And Le Guin is a is an absolutely phenomenal writer. So, uh, and especially because this is this is technically supposed to be a YA novel. The language is a little not simple, but um, you have to choose your words so much more carefully. You can't do the H.P. Lovecraft, you know, squamous, eldritch beings, and, <laughs> and you know, you're just flipping through a thesaurus like, yeah, I'm going to use this right. Like you can't. You can't do that because there's there's a there's a level of approachability that you're shooting for um, for ideally a younger audience and um, and I think that that has really informed a lot of my game design in trying to be um, descriptive while being to the point and I think that is something that um, a few designers specifically for like elf games dungeon games sort of things like the way the way that a designer or writer writes a room in a dungeon tells so much about what 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 they think is important you know yeah uh, you have like three or four sentences to to describe uh all five senses and also tone and also using those five senses and tone you're talking about encounters you're talking about traps you're talking about entrances and exits here there and there like you have you're you're compressing so much information into so little words so so when you have writers like Legin and another one um uh ray bradbury who are just so concise with their language that i think um just from that perspective alone um without even getting into world building uh which is a whole other master class that uh, Le Guin represents that I think just the 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 ability to um, to convey information with brevity um, is is like a huge huge factor in in the Earthsea novels, but this one especially because like she could go into uh, like paragraphs of purple prose on um, you know the tenebriousness of the darkness and the tombs and everything but she doesn't it's just like a few a few simple words and then moving on to the next in the same way that like when when tanar and ged come out of the tombs uh the descriptions of the the desert and and the beauty and the and the life that's there is still present but it's still in the same like very very brief but eloquent terms, you know, where she's talking about, there's a line about uh, like thistle and juniper and frozen reeds by the banks of a desert river in midwinter. Um, that is a complete sentence. Like you could present that as like a dungeon rooms description and you know, everything that's going on there, you, you know what the characters see and uh, where they are and, and sort of an idea of how they would feel about that. And I think that, uh, like focusing on the writing part of the design is is really what uh, what makes this book so special as far as a reference for writing dungeons in particular. I think what is particularly effective and what you're talking about, one of the things you're talking about here is, um, you know, we have that word evocative and she's writing at a level for the perceived, I mean, it wasn't even really a YA market at the time she was helping to create it, but she's writing to 
the level of very bright, um, you know, YA reader. Um, and you bring whatever you know at that point in your life to it. But it's spare enough, it's open enough that 30 years on, 40 years on, you can bring whatever else now you know to it without the barrier of like this very purple prose that you mentioned, like the word squamous or it's yeah. something which in fact, like make things less evocative in some ways because it's just, it just becomes, you know, word salad. At a certain point. Yeah. You, you don't know what it's like. I have to look this word up now. Cause I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, like I'm a big fan of Goodman games and I know Goodman games is very inspired by the appendix N, but I also think that sometimes we can be inspired by the wrong parts of these things. And I know that Goodman Games very much loves to use this very fancy Hygaxian language in their modules, and especially like in their box text that the that that the judge is supposed to read out to the players. And I, I get where they're coming from. I get why they want to do that. But when you're reading off a big chunk of text in 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 this kind of a way, you're not really setting the mood for the players because most of the players don't know what some don't know what a third of those words mean. So you're not you're not really setting the right tone. Where Ursula K. Le Guin does a great job of setting the tone using very accessible language. Yeah, and I think if you look at um, like I love DCC so 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 much, and like Sailors of a Starless Sea is my favorite adventure module of all time hands down and i could probably name 10 other dcc modules in my top 20 but yeah it if you've got a box text that's like a paragraph long and you're reading that to the players by the time you get to the end of it they're just like okay yeah what was that first part again yeah right Wait, what's in this room yeah um <laughs> whereas if you look at uh like i have opinions on um so like old school essentials the i i i have a vendetta against bullet points i hate bullet points so this is just pure ideology oh i love bullet points i I wish more people did it (laughs) i i like the idea of bullet points but you have to but it's like take the bullet points and write a sentence anyways (laughs) i love the way that ose dungeons presents information in those bullet points except i wish it was just a sentence but the information that you get in the bullet points like that to me it's 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 brilliant so it's more like uh judges guild or janelle jackway's writing or exactly like that. right <laughs> it's 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 just like okay here we go here we go this is what you need to know go rather than um going on and on and on right. a little bit i think um you you both uh, make very interesting points i'm not like into the idea of like total no prep like the dm just picks up something for the first time and, and does it because i think having time to think about it and stew over it will make a, a more rich experience than just like reading text for the first time and like reading it directly back to the players. But at the same time, as you mentioned, Jeff, if the box text is very purple or very dense, what you're doing is you're requiring two levels of interpretation. The GM themselves having to then interpret in their own minds before they can even convey it to the players, right? And so then you're losing something there. Whereas if the, the GM has a crystal clear idea in their mind, the text is so evocative that they can see it in their mind, they can transmit it much more effectively to the player. And I think this is basically what Le Guin is doing with Tombs of Atalon, right? I can see that desert. I can see that hard blue sky. Uh, I can see the dryness and the sort of the lack of wind when they're just sitting there on the fence. You know, I can feel that, you know? Yeah, and, and when the characters speak, you can hear the tone that they use without her too often being like, cause you know, some books it'll be like, Oh, she said scornfully. Um, right. He said angrily or whatever. Right. You don't, 
Yeah, you can just hear Manan sighing yeah, when he's talking. You don't need to, to do that. You don't need <laughs> yeah. to say how they say it. You just you convey that in the words that you have them use, and yep. it's it's like what's understood doesn't need to be stated. You know, like mm-hmm. one question I would love to to uh, ask you um, is something that I also I also um, asked the patron book club prior to this. So there's a section of a paragraph here that I would love to see how we could gamify this. So. Um, Get is saying, every instant since I set foot in the cavern underneath the, under the tombstones, I have striven to keep them still, to keep them unaware. All of my skills have gone to that. I have spent my strength on it. I have filled these tunnels with an endless net of spells, spells of sleep, of stillness, of concealment. And yet still they are aware of me, half aware, half sleeping, half awake. And even so, I am all but worn out striving against them. This is a most terrible place. One man alone has no hope here. I was dying of thirst when you gave me water, yet it was not the water alone that saved me. Okay, I've gone on too far. But the the, the, the gist here, though, is that his magics he's using constantly all day long while he's under here to keep these powers at bay. Now, Dungeons and Dragons with our fancy and magic are cast, cast the spell and then forget it. It would be harder to use in in gamifying something like this. So I'm curious, how would you go about gamifying a dungeon where you've got a powerful magic user who is who has to use all of his powers to keep the stuff at bay so um a lot of the the systems that i played previously to like diving headfirst into like old school sort of elf games um a lot of the the sort of magic systems uh while being vancian based they also had um like the effects were more um it, it wasn't like so like dark heresy for example when you ca- when you use your psychic powers you don't have like a like a max number of psychic powers that you can use like you're 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 using it as an ability um rolling against one of your statistics and so like easy mode would just be to be like oh well you're at a penalty when you're casting spells because your attention is is set elsewhere kind of thing um you could also like purely gamified wise like do something like the um like the mishap sort of magic tables in dcc or i know a bunch of other systems do it too i absolutely adore those because i think um magic should be dangerous and interesting when you cast it rather than just like i cast fireball okay roll damage kind of thing Mm -hmm. i love the idea that um you're kind of warping reality and it doesn't always work so well when you do that um but Taking it from a, a, a more reactive and towards like a more proactive sort of thing, um, so like a lot of the the sort of older style, like old school, like Moldvay and Cook sort of D and D games. If you look at the spell lists, they're not you know there's you have your fireballs and your magic missiles and stuff, but a lot of these spells um, you could tell were written to be specifically useful, but only very specifically, and mm-hmm. I think. Um, giving a magic user in a group sort of meta information from the GM's perspective of being like, look, as someone who's attuned to the arcane, here are the things that's happening around you. Um, and here's how the things in your spell book could use to maybe partially counteract that. You know what I mean? Even if it's just something like distracting, like, okay, well, you can't use... Um, hideous laughter because you've cast hideous laughter to 
uh, to echo in the corridors to the southeast to make it sound like you're there as opposed to you're here or you're can- casting dancing lights um, ahead of you or behind you to throw off your position or kind of thing. So like a more, um, yeah, a more proactive rather than reactive kind of like here are situations where you can use your abilities um, in a way that doesn't have a purely like immediate effect, but kind of like this, this keeps the, the things that go bump in the night at bay for like right, a turn like, or two. This or is like, where your, your protection from evil and your blessed spells are going to come in exactly, handy. If you want to get a night's exactly. sleep, it's only going to work if you have protection from evil up. You know? Exactly. <laughs> you know? I do love that. I think the one, if I were going to do that, the one twist on that I would take though, is I would make it on, I would, I would make it the player's responsibility, not the game master's responsibility to tell me why the spells you are selecting, you think are going to be useful in this situation. So I might say, you can sense that this dungeon is alive with dark energies and it is watching you and it is, and you can tell that it wants to kill you. Tell me which spells you're going to use to keep yourself safe here. And I want to know each ones you're planning on using and how you're planning to use them to keep you safe in this dungeon. And then once I've seen how much they've been, both how well they've explained their uses of spell, but also like just literally how much magic they've put into doing this, then I can kind of, as a judge, I can then adjudicate whether or not I feel like they've done enough to keep themselves safe. And also, that's a, that's a good point too, because I feel like nine times out of 10, at least in my experience, players always come up with way better solutions than the ones that like judges or GMs have, yeah. have come up with in the first place. Like I had, when I first started running games, I, I love murder mysteries and heists and stuff. And I would come up with solutions. And then the players would be like, well, we're going to do this. And I'm like, well, that isn't the solution that I thought you would come up with, but it's so much better. <laughs> so after a certain point, I just, I don't, I don't write like, like if I'm doing a whodunit, I don't write whodunit. I just, it's like whoever, whoever can come up with the best like it. it was it was yeah yeah it was colonel mustard in in the with the candlestick right like whoever can come up with the best version of that i'm like you're absolutely right it was them I all along that. yeah that's part of what like these are collaborative stories so sure. yeah so that yeah. that level of collaboration is great like it's right. it's what makes it so much fun right i have tons of thoughts but i want to get your last thoughts on the books if you have any here <laughs> yeah i think everything that we've talked about like this being in our in our sort of top fives as books uh, just like the the first time i read this book was probably 12 or 15 years ago and um i've probably read it once every couple of years since and i feel like it's one of those things where i should read it even more frequently than that because there's always things that you pick up on uh like the i don't want to say the prose is simplistic but the the brevity of the prose um lets you read through this book but the complexity of the story lets you find things that you missed no matter how many times you read it i think and i think um one of the uh one of the things that i i really missed a bunch of times and and uh and really hit on this time reading specifically was um how uh, Kargad is built up as this, you know, like the god king. It's so powerful. Uh, Kossel and Thar represent the power of this nation. And then, like in the previous book, you know, it's these are these are the raiders that are attacking Sparrowhawk's village and everything. Like um, Kargad is is represented as being so 
that is like the power to be opposed, right? And then there's this part towards the end where Tenar's like talking about, oh, well, it, I, it feels like Kargad could just roll over and crush Ged's land easily. And he's like, well, not really. They're kind of a tiny provincial power, and the God King is, is a, like a largely insignificant warlord. Like, like this is so important to you here, but in the wider scheme of things, it's nothing. Is this is like this is not a this is not a thing that people worry about really in the wide world. Is is the God King of Kargad conquer? It's just like no, it's not like the world is bigger than this. And so it's another layer of Tenar's journey of her whole world being um, the cottage where she was born until the priestess take her to the tombs, and then her whole world is the tombs until. Uh, she and Ged are led out of it, and then um, she's imagining her whole world as Kargad because that's all she knows and that's all she's heard about. But even then, um, it's just kind of like, nope. There's even more. There's even mm-hmm. more. Like it keeps going. It keeps going. And I think that's a really lovely note um, in that, like, there is so much out there to sort of explore uh, that, um, no matter how. No matter where we are, like there's there's more that we can see and right. and explore and, and experience. And for the first time, she started to have agency because when she's have nor described to her, I mean, anyone would be honored to be over there. But she's like, no, I don't think that's for me. This yeah. is a thing that, not the thing that I want. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, no, I don't think so. And then yeah. he's like, yeah, okay, sure, yeah. right? Like that's that's super cool. There you go. Well, uh, we are out of time. So, Nura, can you tell us um, what projects that you might want people to know about that are coming up and how people can find you? Yeah, so you can find me at, um, at Monkey's Paw Games on Twitter and uh, monkeyspawgames.com, which is uh, the web store for I do uh, retail and distribution for mostly small print and uh, self-published indie RPGs, specifically in Canada, but uh, we ship everywhere. Um, but also on itch.io and drive through RPG, just at monkey's paw games and, uh, projects that I've got coming up is I've been funding and, um, doing a print run for chalice, which is a, uh, it's a tarot based journaling game that you take the part of an Arthurian knight on a grail quest. And, um, so you, you draw tarot cards and it gives you story prompts to write sort of the journey of your knight. Um, which has been the first sort of journaling game that I've written, and that's been a lot of fun to do. And then finally, the big main project on Conquered, which is finished writing. The text version is available on DriveThruRPG and Itch.io. The print version um, is in layout and pre-printing hell because uh, there's a paper shortage and it's taken months and months and months for printers to get back to me with quotes so um i am hoping that that is going to be going to print and then to everyone who backed it soon but um yeah honestly like it's so hard getting a quote from printers right now that it's like plus mm-hmm. you know covid COVID distribution everything's delayed distribution yeah so but it is coming and uh and for those unfamiliar with with my work with unconquered it is a uh science fantasy game that is set in a sort of fictitious bronze age of like liminal worlds uh connected through a sort of 
pseudo Sumerian mythology. Um, there's flying rowing ships and space whales and also like sword and fantasy stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it was a lot of fun to write and I got to work with a lot of fun people. And, um, it's kind of my attempt to, uh, you know, we talked about specifically the, the sword and sandal genre being dominated by white dudes doing white dude things. And I am happy to report that one of the design goals for unconquered is that there are no white people. So, there you go. There's fish people. There's uh, walking pots, but uh, there's. <laughs> <laughs> we need more walking pot rec- uh, um, um, representation. Yeah, I'm just representation. saying. <laughs> Elden Ring took it from me. Okay. Yeah. Ceramic representation. Exactly. You know, ceramic liberation front. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Cool. There you go. Well, um, if you uh, like the Appendix N Book Club podcast, please uh, look for us on your podcatcher of choice and rate us and review us there because it does help people find us. So on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and the like. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, do send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? So uh, first off, I want to let everybody know I've d- I've run the numbers and I've discovered that about four percent of our monthly listeners are currently patrons, and we would love to get that number up. So if any of you are listening and would like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon.com/appendix and book club and show us your support. We really appreciate it. Our patrons uh, get a bunch of a bunch of benefits. One is that they get to join us prior to these recordings to discuss the books that we are um, discussing with our guests. And at our patron book club today, we are joined by Oliver Brackenberry, Rick Byrne, Robert Coleman, Brandon Cruz, and Adam Stiers. We had a fantastic conversation with those folks. Uh, We also, our, our patrons are also able to vote on which books we are going to cover. And the votes are in for episode 121. We're covering N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season. Uh, for ep- episode 122, we're covering E.R. Edison's The Worm Ouroboros. So we've got some very cool stuff coming up. And uh, Hoy, what are get- when we when this episode drops, we're going to be voting on episode 126. Hoy, what are our candidates for right. episode 126? So our nominal theme will be watching the detectives. So that's fantasy and occult detectives. And in fact, there are so many. I didn't realize how many there are. So I had to narrow it down. So it's going to be George C. Chesbro's Shadow of a Broken Man. Glenn Cook's Sweet Silver Blues, William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki the Ghost Finder, and Manly Wade Wellman's Lonely Vigils, which is a collection of short stories of his various occult detectives. So there you go. Perfect. I love it. And I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. This is also a thing that comes with joining our Patreon. You get uh, random shout outs for some of our patrons. So the patrons we'd like to give a shout out to this time are Andy Action, Darren Dumez, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, Jason White, Carsa Tolvald, Eric Hicks, Gentle Reader, Rose City Politics, Matt Richards, Eric Hallstrom, Demo Saklas, Robbie Fioto, Noah Green, Robert Poyton, Dave, Hopstre- Dave Hotstream, By Grinstow, and Joseph Hoopman. Thank you all so much for your support. We really appreciate it. So, everybody, Nura, it's really an honor and pleasure to have you on. It's been so fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. And I personally cannot wait to hear your uh, Wormoro Boros episode, particularly. Yeah, yeah we'll have a pretty good guest on that one. One of too. my favorites. Yeah. Demon Land pretty Forever. Good. Boy. There you go. <laughs>
a really good guest on that one. <laughs> there you go. That's true. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>